From the Center for Racial Equity in Education, this is Deep Rooted, a brief history of race and education in North Carolina, written by Ethan Roy and James E. Ford. Deep Rooted is a historical companion piece to Creed's Erasing Inequities Report. You can access both reports at our website, creed-nc.org. And now, episode three. A Watershed Decision and the Black Response As the nation emerged from the Great Depression and World War II, the issues of race and educational equality again came to the forefront. Indeed, the spring of 1954 was a social and legal watershed moment in United States history. Since the Plessy v. Ferguson decision in 1896, which paved the way for Jim Crow and segregation, the separate but equal doctrine had ruled the South. But in May 1954, the United States Supreme Court overturned the Plessy decision in Brown v. Board of Education, stating that, in terms of public education, schools separated by race were inherently unequal and violated black children's 14th Amendment right to equal protection under the law. But the road to end segregation was far from over. Prophetically, on the day after the Brown decision, the mayor of Tarboro proclaimed, quote, It will be a long time before any such change takes place. End quote. Adding, quote, None of our present traditions of segregation will be interrupted unless and until we are advised that they are improper. End quote. White resistance would continue to stall integration in North Carolina and throughout the South. White's initial reactions were calculated and restrained. Governor Umstead said, The Supreme Court has reversed itself and declared segregation in public schools unconstitutional. In my opinion, its previous decision on this question was correct. Overnight, this decision has brought to our state a complex problem, the why solution of which will require a calm, careful, thoughtful study of all of us. There is no time for rash statements or the proposals of impossible schemes. Like many white North Carolinians, Umstead hoped the process of integration could be slowed as long as possible. Before his death in November 1954, Olmsted created a Committee of Education consisting of 19 members, only three of whom were black. Committee Chair Thomas J. Parasol was bombarded with letters from alarmed white North Carolinians. One typical letter stated, open quote, Expensive as a biracial system of education is to maintain, we had rather bear the burdens of heavier taxes than to obtain the status of a gigantic southern Harlem, where the races are often indistinguishable. End quote. Committee members agreed desegregation was not their goal, and their proposals to the legislator confirmed so. For instance, the Parasol Committee proposed a plan that shifted student assignment authority from the state board to local districts, effectively giving local districts exclusive power to maintain segregated schools. The plan also allocated public money for school relocation, 
a system very similar to North Carolina's current voucher program. In 1955, Luther Hodges, Umstead's successor, appointed a second committee, again headed by Parasol, with just seven members, none of whom were black. Moreover, in May 1955, the Supreme Court issued its Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka II decision, upholding that segregation violated the 14th Amendment. However, the court declared no timeline for integration, only saying states should do so with all deliberate speed. Such vague language gave North Carolina segregationists the green light to stall integration. In early 1956, Governor Hodges unveiled the second parasol plan to the state legislature. This follow-on supported the continuation of the student assignment plan and proposed a constitutional amendment that would allow local communities to close local schools if ordered to integrate by the federal government. That November, the public voted to adopt the amendment by a margin of 471,657 to 107,757. By 1957, only three school districts in North Carolina, Charlotte, Greensboro, and Winston-Salem, agreed to send a small number of black students to all-white schools. Sending white children to black schools was out of the question. These were the first instances of voluntary desegregation in the former Confederate states. And although the state preserved its reputation for racial progressivism, largely because no schools closed in response to desegregation as opposed to states like Virginia, when black student Dorothy Counts walked towards the all-white Harding High School, she was met with stones, spit, and racial slurs. Local civil rights activist Reginald Hawkins escorted Counts out of the school at day's end out of fear for her safety, where they were once again subject to, open quote, a shower of spittle, pebbles, and sticks. They tore our clothes, and the police just stood there and did nothing, end quote, 95. Many white North Carolinians felt threatened by Brown and supported the slow pace of integration enabled by the Parasol legislation. The black community had mixed responses. Throughout North Carolina history, in the face of legal, economic, and social obstacles, African Americans had built proud communities that they controlled and took pride in, schools included. And while some blacks rejoiced in the wake of the Brown decision, others were concerned. In late 1954, black residents of Maiden petitioned the Catalba County School Board, stating, quote, We want to keep our school and we want equal facilities, but we don't want integration. African American organizations like the North Carolina Congress of Colored Parents and Teachers and the NAACP called for integration in varying degrees but none advocated more than Charlotte civil rights leader Reginald Hawkins. The events at Harding High, Hawkins concluded, could be used to publicly shame segregationists while pushing a more radical integrationist agenda. The only way to move forward, he said, 
is to engage bigots in direct controversy within their own community. Convinced that the Charlotte NAACP was taking too moderate a stance on integration in order to please the city's powerful white business and political leaders, Hawkins took matters into his own hands, re-signing as the chapter secretary and formed the Mecklenburg Organization for Political Affairs, MOPA, in 1958. According to historian Michael B. Richardson, Hawkins thought the local NAACP had failed to mobilize Charlotte's black community as a political force. Open quote, Hawkins argued that the political power, the ability to engage previously apolitical people to rally the politically inclined and to leverage votes into concrete gains, was largely an untapped force in Charlotte that MOPA intended to utilize, end quote, Richardson says. By 1960, only three black Charlotte students had been admitted into white schools. In 1961, the only school boards to admit a handful of black students to white schools were Chapel Hill, Charlotte Mecklenburg, Durham, Greensboro, High Point, Raleigh, Winston-Salem, Wayne, Craven, Asheville, and Yancey. Both white and black leaders pushed for equalization of facilities rather than integration, which further hindered the process. Even though white officials put more money into black schools, resulting in improvement of black education, the disparity in funding between white and black schools remained. Despite this slow progress, Hawkins remained a fiery voice for integration. He led a boycott in 1961 when the Charlotte School Board proposed to build a new high school for white students and send black students to the old white high school, Harding, where Dorothy Counts had faced an angry white mob a few years earlier. Hawkins proclaimed, open quote, We can't send our children to school when they're sick, so on Tuesday morning, let's everybody be sick. Sick of segregation and hand-me-down it is. End quote. Even as Hawkins' strategy of mass resistance increased pressure on the school board, he would play another part in a revolutionary court case regarding integration in public schools. Clan Violence and Desegregation as the civil rights movement gained steam and as African Americans continued to push for integration, white backlash and resistance took extra-legal forms. All around the state, black students who tried to enter white schools were physically and verbally assaulted. State and local governments were forced to increase the police presence at several schools. Ku Klux Klan membership spiked as token integration attempts continued during the late 1950s and 1960s. Crosses were burned in front of several schools in Greensboro and in the yard of Superintendent Ben L. Smith. In October 1957, a bomb detonated in front of the home of a black family whose children attended an all-white school in Greensboro. After an investigation, police told Governor Hodges the culprit was open quote, the Negro element of the NAACP, 
end quote. During the same month, the Klan held a rally in Robeson County and tried to hold another a few months later in January 1958, but were thwarted by a group of Lumbee, the local Native American tribe. Embarrassed by that defeat, the North Carolina Klan vowed to take its violent resistance underground. Rumors spread in Greensboro and Charlotte that the Klan had amassed arsenals of automatic weapons and would use them if necessary. Tensions were rising. By 1958, there was ample evidence the Klan intended to make good on their threats. In February, Charlotte police stopped a car of white men loaded with dynamite after a tip came in that the Klan was planning to bomb the Woodland Negro School. Claverins were uncovered throughout the state, and public Klan rallies took place throughout 1958, including a public rally of 75 to 100 Klan members in Greensboro in June. At a July rally, one speaker threatened, open quote, If the Parasol Plan doesn't work, the Smith & Wesson Plan will, end quote. Despite the very real threat of violence, isolated attempts at desegregation continued to occur throughout the state. The Chapel Hill-Carborough school system became the first in the state to implement a voluntary and system-wide desegregation plan during the 1962-63 through 63 school year. Other school districts cautiously became more serious about desegregation plans. By 1963, the civil rights movement was reaching a climax in North Carolina. Thousands of demonstrators in cities such as Raleigh and Greensboro marched, demanding the integration of public spaces and accommodations, and that the federal and state governments finally grant African Americans all of the rights of first-class citizenship. This massive display of resistance and civil disobedience sparked yet another spike in the Klan membership and activity. More than 2,000 Klansmen gathered outside Salisbury in August 1964 to hear Grand Wizard Robert Jones rail against Governor Terry Sanford. Klan members bombed a black church in Craven County and a black elementary school in Smithfield in 1965. That same year, the homes of civil rights leaders Frederick and Kelly Alexander Julius Chambers and Reginald Hawkins were bombed. Thankfully, no one was hurt, but the cases went unsolved. The Civil Rights Act and the Fallout for Black Educators Lyndon B. Johnson signed a Civil Rights Act into law on July 2, 1964. Now the U.S. Attorney General had the power to bring lawsuits on behalf of African-American plaintiffs in local school districts still practicing segregation. This tool proved critical in North Carolina, where local school districts had been given considerable power under the Pupil Assignments Act nearly a decade earlier. The 1964 Act also granted the U.S. Secretary of Education power to collect data from local school boards to monitor the progress of desegregation. Evidence that could be used in legal challenges to local school districts accused of postponing Brown. 
the Supreme Court strengthened the Civil Rights Act in 1968 through Green versus County School Board of New Kent County in Virginia. This decision provided lower courts the legal direction to desegregate after ending its policy of, quote-unquote, all deliberate speed in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. While most public school districts desegregated their schools between 1968 and 1976, white parents left public schools for all white suburbs or private schools, a process now known as white flight. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Green decision in 1968 finally gave the federal and local governments the legal teeth to implement desegregation. Most of the black community applauded these developments, but not all of the impacts positively affected them, says historian David Soselsky. Quote unquote, black communities repeatedly had to sacrifice their leadership traditions, school cultures, and educational heritage for the other benefits of desegregation. Black educators bore perhaps the most negative outcomes of desegregation. There were 620 black elementary school principals in 1963 in North Carolina. By 1970, that number had plummeted to 170. By the end of the 1970s, there were no black superintendents in any of the state's 145 school districts, and 60% of those districts employed no black administrators, even though black students made up 30% of the student body. Black teachers, to a lesser but significant degree, suffered as well, becoming expendable as black and white schools merged. By 1972, more than 3,000 black teachers in North Carolina had lost their jobs to their white counterparts. Only in Texas did a higher number of black teachers lose their jobs. More and more black students sat in classrooms led by teachers who did not look like them, could not share their experience of being black in a white-dominated world, and often did not have their best interest in mind. Countless black students suffered academically as a result. A Hyde County Affair The most extreme case of African-American resistance to desegregation occurred around this time in Hyde County. The summer of 1968, the local school board, in cooperation with the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction, the Office of Civil Rights, and the Department of Health, Education, and Wellness, HEW, approved a desegregation plan for the county. As was often the case in North Carolina, black students would attend previously all-white schools and the black high school, OA Pay, would become an administrative building. Alarmed and enraged, blacks in Hyde County organized and petitioned the school board to craft a new plan that would keep the black schools open. The board refused, prompting black residents to take dramatic action. Abel Fulford Jr. recalled, We decided that they couldn't implement their plan without students, so that we would boycott the schools until they listened to us, until they agreed to keep the schools open. We wanted integration, 
but we would have taken anything so long as we still had our schools. By September, black citizens of Hyde County had taken to the streets in protest and made good on their threat to boycott the school system. Very few black parents sent their children to white schools at the start of 1968-69 through 69 academic year. As the boycott went on, racial tensions continued to rise. After four weeks, Hyde County's black parents, concerned about the amount of instructional time their children were missing, developed a short-term plan to reopen the black schools and maintain segregation until they could pressure the school board to develop a desegregation plan that would save their schools for the long term. One way, desegregation was not a long-term option. However, Hugh refused to go back to the quote-unquote freedom of choice plan, and the boycott continued through the fall. As winter arrived, blacks in Hyde County upheld the boycott with more conviction than ever, and more protesters were arrested. Hyde County became a powder keg of racial tension, ready to blow at any moment. The spark occurred in July 1969 when a sniper fired on a car carrying four young black passengers as they drove by a Klan meeting at the Middletown Crossroads. As word spread, 185 black citizens, many of them armed, confronted the group of 80 Klansmen in a two-hour standoff. As the Klansmen set a cross on fire, shots rang out, and a hail of bullets ripped through the air. No one was seriously injured, but a black girl and several police officers suffered minor injuries. Desperate to ease tensions, the state superintendent named a new Hyde County superintendent, R.O. Singletary, who had experience in desegregation. A two-man team of state-appointed desegregation experts, Gene Cosby and Dudley Flood, arrived in June to begin the work of traveling the county, listening to residents and learning their history. This team spent months as liaisons between the protesters and the county school board, opening up lines of communication in hopes of reaching an agreement. At one meeting with residents, Flood took out a two-toned rubber ball he'd bought at a gas station. The rubber paddle ball was red on one side and green on the other. He presented it to the crowd and asked them what color the ball was. It's red, they replied. Flood continued, I see a green ball. This ball is green to me. Flood later said that he knew if he could convince the people of Hyde County that both black and white could be greater parts of a whole, then perhaps progress could be made. Still unable to produce a plan in the summer of 1969, the school board and boycott leaders agreed to keep segregation intact until they could agree on a desegregation plan for the 1970-71 through 71 school year. Hugh denied this petition and demanded that Hyde County desegregate immediately. In July, school leaders decided on a new tactic. They would place a desegregation plan up for a bond issue. Bussing black students to white schools meant new buildings had to be built to accommodate the influx of students. 
at a cost of $500,000 plus a debt service of $350,000 over 25 years. If that plan was rejected at the polls, the only solution left was to agree to keep the black schools operating with integrated student bodies. Their petition to halt desegregation denied. Hyde County blacks were at the mercy of the county's white voters. Voters took to the polls on November 5, 1969, and defeated the bond by a four-to-one margin. Both of the county's historical black schools would be included in the desegregation process. The boycott was successful. For white voters, the tax increase needed to pay for the bond had proven too much to stomach. But local whites also liked the idea of a more community-based school district and lamented the fact that a handful of powerful white men had been making decisions for the whole county populace. Others were simply moved by the conviction of their black neighbors. Perhaps Dudley Flood's paddle ball prompted their change of heart. <laughs>